and it was the first time that I had been on a set that had had a, a black woman as the first AD and uh, a black woman as the script supervisor. And I got to be frank, I hadn't like just like I didn't think that that was uh, something I needed to see until I started working with them and seeing like, oh, wait. Yeah, I've never actually seen, I've never actually worked with a black first AD or a black scripty. So that was something new. And then, you know, once you see it, you can't unsee it and you think to yourself, well, wait a second, why haven't I worked? Like, why have all the scripties and why have all the ADs that I've worked with been, for the most part, white? Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 21st episode of the Unofficial Last Year Film Podcast. The last episode on my schedule and the last episode that hopefully I'll be hosting. Let's continue and continue this thing on in some form. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so last episode and this is a special episode because, of course, in the past few weeks um, of the time of recording, um, the Black Lives Matter movement has taken a very strong standpoint and people around the world are paying attention and now is the probably the most important time or a very important time in the terms of confronting modern day racism and discrimination so here today i am joined by uh, chris and kenton and uh, new to the show our dear friend colin george babb say hello everyone hello hello Yes, Colin is a, an actor friend, um, uh, yes. and well, we'll get into that in a second. But before we dive in, let me just say a quick statement about um, our position, because I we all are, of course, you know, for um, Black Lives Matter and, dis and ending discrimination worldwide. And so, on that, we have a statement drafted up by our own very Chris. Thank you, Chris. <clears throat> The objective and direction of the unofficial Last Year Film podcast has been to aid students in the art of storytelling. We encourage all filmmakers to tell the stories that are meaningful to themselves and provide value in their creation. In times where we turn the camera upon ourselves and reflect upon our motivations and ideals, we endeavor to listen and watch stories from a diverse perspectives and backgrounds. In the case of Black Lives Matter, we turn our attention and our listening ears toward the stories of the Black community and seek to understand and facilitate the stories that are formative of their experiences. So moving on from there, Colin, um, before we dive in, do you want to give a little bit of background on yourself and your experiences? Um, my name is Colin George Babb. I, before um, March of this year, I was an actor. I suppose I still am, but you know, the industry shut down. Um, uh, I've worked on, oh gosh, dozens if not scores of film sets uh, in the past couple of years as a production assistant. So I'm with you guys. Um, I've taken uh, improv classes, acting classes all over LA. I love networking. I love getting to experience it. I love, I love film and I love this creative field. I'm also a black actor, if that wasn't clear. <laughs> <laughs> So, Colin, you are from, uh, I forget which island. Uh, Guyana. My family, so, yeah, my family is from Guyana. Uh, it is part of the Caribbean, but it's not an island. It is 
almost entirely landlocked. But because of its proximity to other Caribbean nations, as well as its history, uh, it's part of uh, CARICOM, which is for, for Caribbean Community of Nations. Oh. Yes. Um, it has a significant Black population. Um, and I got to say, going back there uh, and seeing how we're represented in um, ad campaigns and news and TV, it is night and day uh, on the representation game. But it, it yeah. Well, today's topic, we'll be diving into, um, of course, Black Lives Matter and diversity in the film industry. So let's just have, uh, Colin, in, in your experiences uh, working as a production assistant, as an actor, um, how have you experienced or what's your view on like the diversity of like film sets and like has there any been any um, clear and obvious like discrimination against you or other Black people that you've seen? So, um, on the sets I've been on, they've been predominantly white, um, which isn't a surprise. Um, and yeah, there's a lot, there's, um, there's a lot of discrimination or there's a lot of people not filling the roles that you would like them to be filled with. Like, um, the last major production I worked on last summer was for an indie film and it was the first time that i had been on a set that had had a, a black woman as the first ad and uh, a black woman as the script supervisor and i gotta be frank i hadn't like just like i didn't think that that was uh, something i needed to see until i started working with them and seeing like oh wait yeah i've never actually seen i've never actually worked with a black first ad or a black scripty so that was something new and then you know once you see it you can't unsee it and you think to yourself well wait a second why haven't i worked like why have all the scripties and why have all the ad's that i've worked with been for the most part white a couple asian one latinx um and it's uh so for for my experience, when it came to being on set, um, there is a there is like casual racism. Like some of it is stuff that uh, you could laugh off for the sake of just getting through the day. Or um, white people on set who feel the need to make their opinion on certain subjects. Uh, like have a pretty out loud opinion on certain things. Like um, last year there was a, uh, last year there was an ABC special. It was a remake lot slash live production of uh, All in the Family and the Jeffersons. It was done as a back to back. Um, it was a pretty good special. And I remember when that special came out, like I had gone on to another set and this one white guy I'd been working with, uh, he, never mind, he was a white guy. Uh, he said that, oh, yeah, no, I thought it was so funny, but, like, why did they censor out nigga? And I'm like, really? You felt the need to, like, say, first things first, you felt the need to say that to me, say that to a black person, but you couldn't have said the N-word. And so I asked him, like, why you got to say it? He's just like, I mean, they said it back then. I feel like it's kind of disingenuous to the original work and da-da-da-da-da. And I'm like... Yeah, dude, but um, you noticed that it was a black person saying it? 
um, in the context of the show. Um, and also you seem, you clearly have missed the mark entirely. Uh, this is all stuff that I didn't say to him, but it's like stuff that I was just thinking, just like, and I tried to tell him that, I did try to tell him that he missed the mark of why he shouldn't be able to say that. And then he went on about how people are super sensitive nowadays, or he brought up how they had completely recreated the, they had used the original script from the seventies. Uh, and he said that it was still funny. It still held up. And I'm like, yeah, dude, but you know, you still, there's still like, it's like you got part of it, but you're being willfully difficult. Uh, you're being, sorry, not willfully difficult. You were willfully ignoring the other part of it, which was in the context of the show. Uh, it was about, I was like directed at this, uh, it was a black man saying it to this interracial couple. Um, and he was wondering if the white husband had ever referred to his wife that way and they were offended. And the idea is to like build up that offense. But yeah, I think he just took the wrong message from that. And that is pretty common, especially like on the subject of, oh, can I say it in rap lyrics? Can I say it with this? I'm of the opinion, if you have to ask, you already know the answer and it's no. I think this is a great like jumping off point to talk about the industry specifically because we have to kind of remember a general history of the film industry started in America and obviously yes. starting back about a hundred, you know, back around the 1900s turn of the century. Um, the people that have the ability and the resources and the people that have the creative control are all people that are predominantly white. There's very few Inter, like very few like other races that had the opportunity to create film at the time and so we have to remember that the people that were creating these films the people that are creating the standards of the people that are creating these things came from a very specific turn of the century perspective right and because of that we're going to see a lot of issues further down the line as we get into the show yeah so i, I like that you bring that up because if you're so if you study film Chances are you've seen or talked about or heard about Birth of a Nation. It's the first uh, major blockbuster. It had a huge budget. It was like it had a pretty wide distribution. It was really popular. First movie shown in the White House and all of that. Um, but what people don't talk about in relation to Birth of a Nation, it came out at right at the turn of the century. So over 100 years ago at this point, probably 105 years ago, I think. Um, but the black community at the time was pretty vocal that, you know, this is garbage. This is uh, really, really bad because. Um, so Birth of a Nation, like a lot of other like it was the first major movie, but it did set the trend. And, you know, it wasn't it wasn't the first, but it also wasn't the last to uh, participate in the active exclusion of black people. Uh in film, um, like the biggest one, it, the biggest indicator of that is blackface or minstrelsy. That is where, just like for the sake of like, if you don't know, it's where white actors use paint, shoe polish, whatever they need to uh, paint themselves black to play black characters. Not black characters, but really broad caricatures of black characters. And Birth of a Nation is no exception. Um, and it's in that movie, the black characters and big humongous air quotes are portrayed as 
simultaneously really dumb, but also deceptively clever and like sexually voracious and a threat to the chastity and sanctity of white womanhood. And naturally that pissed off a lot of black people. Um, but something good came out of it. There was an actor at the time, his name was Noble Johnson. And after Birth of a Nation came out, he founded the very first black owned and run production company, uh, Lincoln. And um, he did it in an effort to make roles for black actors and writers and storytellers that they weren't going to get, um, that they weren't going to get made. They were called, they were called race films and they always dealt with uh, themes of race, the themes that came with being black in America at the time. So it's poverty, it's uh, the recreational terrorism that the country was, that certain parts of the country, most parts of the country were uh, engaging with. And because of, because of the nature of these movies, um, they had a really hard time finding distributors because there's only a handful of movie theaters in the country that will one uh, take black patrons at this time. That's one and two will not just take black patrons, but show movies uh, that were top to that were top to bottom black productions. Um, and as a result of that, you know, there's not enough. There's they're not getting the same funding that the studios that are up and coming are getting. Uh, they're not getting the distribution to make their money back. So while it wasn't the only black production company, um, it couldn't sustain itself. And that's the case with most black production companies at this time is that they just could not sustain themselves uh, on the work that was being made for them. And so even though at this time of the pre-code, this time period is known as the pre-code era, um, even though there are black stars and there are talented black actors who are doing comedy, drama, musical, romance, um, if you're doing it in a race film, it's not getting the distribution that, uh, that it deserves. And for a lot of these stars, they're having to do um, parts in uh, predominantly white productions, playing... Uh, butlers maids or stereotypical and like damaging at the like roles that were seen as damaging to the image at the time um and and it's it's really sad that's like all that's like the best roles, the best paying roles are the ones that are asking you to represent yourselves these way even though these actors have shown that they have the same range the same talent the same ability as white performers yeah. So in other words, um, the film industry has had a long and horrible history of exclusion for multiple reasons. Obviously, race was a big issue of these companies when they were coming up. Obviously, resources, availability, access to actors, but also just a desire not to show these things or show other people or showcase other people. Like Holland right. was saying, yeah, like Holland was saying with the black community, you would um, they would not often hire black actors who had the ability and the skill and the resources, they often would do would just paint themselves or have other people appropriate what this stereotype or this image of these of other people in their mind would be. This you can see this in, in uh, the Native Americans when they're showcased. You can see this with Asian people when they're showcased. 
and you especially see it with the black community when they show black people on screen, but it's actually a white actor doing blackface. Yeah, and so as we're nearing a so as we're nearing the depression era a lot of black actors found were like called to europe specifically paris to get work because you know they're uh because in paris they didn't have this they weren't holding the same restrictions on black actors performing so you had like actually like josephine baker nicholas brothers who were all going over in droves to paris to get the work made because they're telling stories that they weren't telling in the United States. They're telling uh, interracial love stories. They're telling, uh, they're like front and center. Um, they're in roles that, because here's the thing too, even if, um, even if you were a black performer and you did have a, if you were signed on a contract with a studio, a lot of times you would be put in, you weren't in the lead or like if you like, there were like a handful of act of black actresses from this era who did get lead roles, but uh, it was like one lead role. And then they never got the same, uh, they never got the same energy put into them that their white counterparts were. Um, and uh, in the case of some actors like Lena Horne getting a little ahead of myself, but in the case of some of these actors, they had significant parts that would then get edited out for distribution. So they're still in there. The studio still did honor their contract, um, but yeah, that fine print element is there. <laughs> yeah, I think it's really like just sad and like you know to like know that like back in the day and still maybe even today, you know, the people that have that power to control things really just like see or at least it's it's like almost as if it's like a threat to them if like a, a person of color or a person that's not them is given an opportunity um to shine and it, it's it's tough to talk about I mean, we, before, if it's, you know, back in the day, you know, we can talk about it and like, oh, you know, that's, that's back before, but now, you know, it's still happening today, Maybe <laughs> in, not, as, not as much or in a different way, but it's, it's definitely still happening. I think the important yeah. thing to take from all of this is just kind of understanding that history is really formative, like how the industry was formed and grown has lasting impacts and effects in modern society you will probably we'll cover a lot of that and how it's kind of like leaked into modern day but the the place you start from is always going to affect where you go unless you make conscious efforts to be different and so when it comes to bias when it comes to racism when it comes to bigotry when it comes to appropriation and colonization of other people and their stories it's really important that if we want to change, we have to actively do so because every unconscious bias that's in the industry will keep being there if we don't address it and change it. Right. It's that intentionality that you have to go in with, um, especially if you're in a position where you say yourself, well, why does like, if not, 
if you say to yourself or if you know someone who's saying, well, why do you need to have a black person or so? It's just a diversity hire. It's like, mm, well, you can call it that, but really it's just being intentional with uh, spotting your bias and starting to see like, well, wait, why don't we have a black catering company do the crafty for this production? Um, yeah. I think this yeah, is a great just, segue. Uh, as, a, as a quick note, I just had like, I had a quick thought that I, I saw something on Twitter or something that was like, you know, the, out of like all like the, the, um, the major companies, like their executive board, like the one black person that's on there is like the chief diversity officer or whatever. It's, yeah. it's like, you know, you see like if, if it's frustrating, well, I, I'm, you know, more or less, you know, white than I am, you know, Asian or something. <laughs> so, I mean, it is, but it, it's, it's just mind boggling to see that like, oh, if we have a diversity section, let's just hire a black person for that or a person of color for that. You know, it's just like, it's, it's like you said, you know, if you hire somebody to, to be diversity, then that's a diversity hire, but to be intentional about where you're going in terms of like actually improving the diversity it's not just about having a diversity section it's about being intentional with the rest of the stuff as well oh yeah but that's like why i said it's like you need to be focusing on where it needs to go like what would uh like imagine what does pay scale look like what would the pay scale for um i don't know someone give someone give me a movie studio any movie studio will do i mean i don't uh, have to give you a movie studio i can give you a real life example but it's not exactly um it's about a. It's about people of color, not necessarily about a black community. Um, oh, no. I was gonna say like, uh, if like if you had Bloomhouse, like if you had a oh. black woman as the financial, uh, as the CFO of Bloomhouse, like, what would the pay scales for people look like? Because you know, like, I, not to say that like just any black woman would have like the universal experience, but what would her experience look like if she thinks to herself, well, wait. I know what it's like to be paid uh, less than what I'm worth. And I don't want, like, I can see I'm in a position where I can decide that, wait, these actors are this production. We can reallocate some assets here. And, you know, everyone gets paid for their time. Everyone gets paid well. Everyone gets paid this. Obviously, that's not going to happen for every, if, like, if you just put a black woman in the CFO position. But it's like, what are you missing out on by not having that experience there? I think something that is good to highlight is that filmmaking is a lot of choices. There are so many individual choices that you make from thinking about a script, writing the script, editing a script, getting it produced, making sure you get all your locations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Every single choice you make along the way is affected by conditional or unconditional bias that you have in your head. And if you have a bias specifically in terms of race, you're not going to make a choice that's directed towards a diverse culture or a diverse, let's say, like Colin brought up catering, for example, right? If you think about crafty, what is the first thing that comes to your head? If you think about catering, what's the first thing that comes to your head? Normalizing a diversity across the board when it comes to every choice that includes who you hire, what they do, who the people that act in the film, who the people that are in front of the film, who feeds your crew, you know, all of the jobs above and below the line in the film industry are a choice. And that ultimately affects the product that you're going to make, the story that you're going to tell. And especially when it comes to actual pay scale, for instance, yeah, having someone above the line in a, in a position of authority and ability to make change will have the most effective change 
for that community because they understand to some degree what it's like. Mm -hmm. Let's move on to the code. Um, Colin. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The motion picture production code colloquially referred to as the Hayes code named after the Catholic zealot who drafted it. Um, (laughs) Time uh, scale, time frame. Where are we? Where are we in the uh, motion picture life? At this point, we are in the mid-1930s. The Hayes Code would be the law of the land from about the mid-1930s to the end of the 1950s. Um, So the code dictated uh, what could or could not be shown in American films if they wanted to have wide distribution. So it legislated against nudity, uh, same-sex attraction, like even implying same-sex attraction or relation, Um, But most importantly, for the subject of this podcast, it stated that miscegenation or interracial sexual relationships was forbidden. Like it was an absolute no-no. And that's uh, so as a result, um, again, just going to uh, actresses, if you were an if you were a black woman and you were an actress in this time period, Roles for you, roles for women at this time are pretty limited as it is. Um, so if you're a woman and you're an actress, most of the roles that you're going to be getting, if you're a woman and you're an actress, <laughs> if, you're, if you're a woman and you're an actor, uh, the roles that you're going to be getting are limited to motherhood roles, to maybe a domestic role, because this is dep- the depression where everyone is going in, where everyone's working, um, or usually romance so you're going to be playing a romantic lead and if uh and if you're a black woman um well you can't be the romantic lead to a white actor who's definitely going to be playing the lead part um so it's during this time we see a lot of black women are being relegated to the stereotypical mammy role uh like for most black women who are acting at this time, they played a mammy. A mammy is the, is the stereotypical uh, black character who is a holdover from uh, the towards the end of slavery and reconstruction era. She's usually fat, loud, happy, uh, not very bright. Um, and she's like always happily serving her white family. Uh, doesn't really have a life outside of basically being their slave, but, you know, paid. Um, and this was, uh, so like the most famous example of that would be Hattie McDaniel, who was the first black person to win an Academy Award. She won in 1939 for her supporting role in Gone with the Wind as Mammy. And... Yeah, not even the name is just Mammy. <laughs> not, yeah, not even... <laughs> Um, and it was a, it was again, just like with birth of the nation, that was a very controversial movie in the black community. There were protests and there were riots against it. And Hattie McDaniel did shoulder a lot of criticism for that part. Um, because it is playing into that mammy stereotype. Uh, and she rolled with the punches as best as she could. But, you know, it's like she famously said that she would rather make she would rather make seven hundred dollars a week playing a maid than seven dollars a week actually being one. Um, But, you know, she wasn't blind to the criticism and she 
and again, like the other like other actors of her time, she did have the range and she did have the talent. It's just that was the only role that was afforded to her. And the night that she won her Oscar, the hotel where the Academy Awards were being held and broadcast that night was segregated. So she shows up to the ceremony, um, but she wasn't allowed to sit with the rest of the cast in the banquet hall. She had her own little table in a back room, and if she won, someone would come out and tell her. And she did win, so they went out and got her, and she uh, gave a really heartfelt, really emotional speech about what it meant to her. Um, but then, you know, she still had to go back to her little table outside of the ceremony. And um, though looking back on it, I will say this, just for the time period, it just like, I know this is going to sound like a weird thing to say, it is a good performance. It was a well-earned Oscar, but um, still, it's like, what does it say that this is the only role that she, like, this is how she won the role. This is the role that won her an Oscar and how she chose to represent herself. And if we look at the Oscar categories for black women at the, not just at that time, but throughout time, even now, like as recently as 2013, Lupita Nyong'o won supporting actress for playing a slave who is much more of a character and much more nuanced than Hattie McDaniel's Mammy was, but still it's like all these years later. And that's still how you need to be represented in order to get that represent in order to get that recognition. Um, so that's where, so that's um, how that's going. And at the, and during this era, um, there are black, there are more black leading actors, uh, at least signing on with contracts for studios. But there isn't really an incentive to make movies with them because uh, studios at this time are are thinking aren't really interested in making movies with black leading actors because remember miscegenation is in the thing. So the logical next step would be to have a romance story between two black people, but studios don't want to make movies because they don't want to alienate viewers in the South. Uh, because remember at this time in history, uh, go, during the depression and going into the war uh in the South and in other parts of the country, but mostly in the South, um, there's still lynchings. Um, black people are still being beaten, sexually assaulted. Black children are being locked in cages or being put on display in zoos. So no, this is not, uh, this is not stuff that is exactly encouraging to studio executives because during the depression, less people are going to see movies and if less white people are going to see movies, then that means there are almost no black people going to see movies. Uh, so there's not really an incentive because movies are getting more expensive to make at this point. Uh, they're becoming bigger risks. Studios aren't willing to invest that risk to put black faces on screens. And then, you know, there's just the same old who's going to want to see an all black musical. Who's going to want to see a black crime drama on all that like BS. So to kind of like jump on the code right now, um, like Colin was saying, like uh, miscegenation is definitely one of the things that studios are trying to like keep in mind because this is also during the time that um, a lot of like 
purity reform is happening. And, you know, you have to kind of remember that um, this was also drafted by someone who came from a religious background. So a lot of the code here is heavily, heavily influenced by a very white Anglo-centric nationalistic perspective. So there's a couple things in here that are really also a big issue. So for instance, another rule that's in here is that white slavery shall not be treated. But you can show black slavery, so that's fine. But mm-hmm. white slavery, God forbid. Um, there's a lot of other things in this that kind of scream nationalism as well. Like the code for its time period has a lot of those elements. And you have to remember that a lot of these like rules and these barriers are what basically funneled what was being shown to people. And because of that, that set a standard for, okay, if you want a film to be sold, if you want a film to be made, you got to follow these rules. And so I encourage people to go look up these codes and understand how the modern day has been affected and essentially directed by a lot of these rules. Yeah, it's another thing, too, about the Hayes Code is that as that like it's not just that the Hayes Code is there, but other uh, attitudes are evolving, too. So blackface and yellowface are also not going to be as they're 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 getting nuance as we enter the era of the Hayes Code. So, um, as I said before, blackface is where you have white actors paint literally painting themselves in uh, black makeup. There's also yellowface, where uh, you know through some subtle contouring or taping your eyes uh, backwards, white actors can now play Asian characters, and. I can think of at least two occasions where these uh, where these really took off, where they took these ideas and ran with it. In nine in the nineteen thirties, there was this movie called The Good Earth that went into production, and there was this actress, Anna Mae Wong, who was the only Asian movie star by any standard, but uh, she was the only Asian actress to be a movie star at the time. And she heard that this movie called The Good Earth was being made. And she had been playing these like really stereotypical, like demure Asian uh, uh, Asian butterfly roles or these like or someone who has these dangerous sex secrets from the Orient. Um, but then she hears The Good Earth is being made and she's like, wait, I've read that book. I know what it's about. Finally, there's a role that I can really play. Um and she campaigned really hard for the role, but the role went to a white actress named Louise Rayner, uh, who's not just white, she was German. And her Chinese, she didn't even do a Chinese accent, she just used her German accent because it just needs to sound foreign enough. So she has heavy contouring, she has her eyes pulled back, and uh, they offered Anna Mae Wong a supporting role to play the movie's villain, but she didn't want to play the villain, especially being the only actual Asian person in the role. So she turned it down, and Louise Reiner went on to win an Oscar for the role. And around that same time, there was a movie called Pinky uh, about a white-passing uh, black woman who fell in love with a white man who didn't know that she was black. And there were two actresses. Uh, two black actresses who were fairer complexion, so they could play white passing, named Lena Horne and Dorothy Dandridge. Uh, both of them were like at each other's throats to get this part, but it went to a white actress 
who went on to get an Oscar nomination for it. And it, that movie made a lot of money. It was one of the highest grossing movies of that year. And these are still blackface or yellowface roles. Um, they're given more dignity than the minstrel roles of just a few years earlier, but it's still a problem. And it's a problem that a lot of really famous actors from this time period were active participants in. Yeesh. Yeah. <laughs> so if we're talking about today's modern day filmmaking, what are some major issues that you see um, right now? Um, I would say that a lot of the... Uh, today, here's the thing. It's like, it's... A lot of it really is just same shit, different day. Because while, you know, black, while black people are running their own production companies or leading movies, um, there's still a lot of backlash. Like we can all remember just a few years ago when the internet lost, like we can remember the collective outrage on the internet when John Boyega first just like, burst onto the screen for the first trailer of Force Awakens. People were really pissed that, you know, a black stormtrooper is a thing. Um, even when the movie got its internet international distribution, um, John Boyega, even though he's one of the leads of that movie, uh, you can very clearly see in the posters for the movies in, for the movie in China or in Japan, his image is uh, photoshopped to be much smaller than it was originally uh, here in the States. Um, and then, like I said, in the South movies, so in the Hayes Code era, movie studios were reluctant to make movies featuring black leads because, you know, they didn't want to alienate viewers in the South. But now you can say, oh, uh, well, international audiences just won't relate to black leads. And one of the most prominent examples of that was when uh, a studio exec for Marvel, Ike Perlmutter, he's a bad person, so I don't mind putting his name on blast. <laughs> uh, he openly stated that he had, so Black Panther had been talked about for the MCU since the early days, since about 2008. But, you know, he's an exec over at Marvel at this time, and he keeps putting it on the back burner because he is convinced that Black Panther would not sell, first of all, stateside because a Black-led superhero movie hadn't come out in a really long time, and the last one hadn't made a lot of money. And that's what he was concerned with. So he felt that a Black-led superhero movie wouldn't sell in the States, and it certainly wouldn't sell internationally. Um, and when so many of these big budget, more ambitious movies are the design, is, the goal is not just to make a lot of money here domestically, you're trying to get worldwide box office dollars. Um, that's like a perfect excuse to once again, start to exclude people, black people from being in front of the camera. But it isn't just that we, it's not just being in front of the camera because that's like we've done really well with our guard, but it's also who's being uh, who's running things behind the camera. We're talking black directors, cinematographers, screenwriters, um, and those are just the big roles. Like, and even the little ones too, like the black PAs or um, 
the uh, black people in the advertising team or the black technical positions. Uh, like, um, especially looking at uh, majority black narratives since the Hayes Code, uh, a lot of them were being told with white directors, screenwriters, etc. But like going forward, we really do need to think to ourselves, okay, we really need to give the opportunity to tell black stories back to black people. And it's not always going to be perfect as we've seen with some production companies and studios, but you know what? They are, it's still giving black people the chance to tell their story, to make themselves heard, to show what they are capable of creatively. Um, uh, going back to Marvel and Black Panther, Black, like just looking at T'Challa, the lead of Black Panther's uh, introduction in Captain America's Civil War, he's a really different character than the one we would see in his movie a couple of years later. Um, he wears different clothes, his fighting style is different, but, and even at the end of that movie in the post credit scene, we get a glimpse of Wakanda, and Wakanda looks like any other Stark facility or any other uh, like Marvel facility at the time. And it isn't until um, you get a black production designer, you get black costume designer that, oh, this is what this is supposed to look like. This is what, uh, this is what like, uh, this is what a black creative fields can create. Um, and it feels much more authentic. It feels the world that they created is much more lived in. It's, the little details like the costumes or the graffiti in Shuri's lab. Um, it's like they could have just given Wakanda really cool cell phones, but they gave them the Kamoyo beads. These are, I mean, true, those were from the comics, but you know, they're still thinking outside the box. This is what you could get. These are the things you're missing out on when you don't hire black people to tell stories for black people. Um, in the 1970s, the first like mainstream black drama series was Roots. Um, and it was like a huge star-studded cast. It made stars out of all of his cast members, most notably LeVar Burton. Um, and it's the story of the history of a black family through its generations. And it's still like in part a white narrative because there are characters who are written specifically for the TV show that weren't in the book because uh the tv the producers of the show really did not want to alienate or make white people feel guilty about their ancestors complicitness in slavery so they wrote in uh characters who were good compassionate slave owners or morally conflicted about the atlantic slave trade um, so yeah so you see that's what happens like this is what uh this is what you breathe this is what happens um because like I'm sure we all know people or have heard of people who would justify slavery saying, oh, but such and such had slaves, but they were very well treated and cared for. It's like, you're still slaves. Um, and this is what you get from the media that you, we've created of, you know, softening the blow to make it more palatable for white audiences. Kind of jump off that. I think one of the best things about the Black Lives Matter movement is kind of like shattered the idea that being silent about something, not talking about something, or trying to dance around the you know the the gritty details of an event or people or an experience, what it really does is just delay it. 
when we yeah. don't talk about the stories and we don't show the stories and we don't allow people to tell their own stories in the authentic and real way, what we're really doing is we're censoring them. And when you censor people, you don't actually get the full message out. And you don't get the full message out, problems like racism and all of these other issues that plague the industry just persist. And so I think the Black Lives Matter movement has really kind of pushed us to the point where we have to understand being silent about something, not talking about something, and essentially just, you know, painting something to look pretty is not confronting reality. And when we don't do that, nothing changes. And also for the actual studio executives, um, if you don't tell these stories, they're never going to be profitable because they're not normalized. The way that you and, can profit off of these stories is to normalize it. Well, here's the thing, too, uh, just on the subject of profiting off of it, is we've seen in decades past that top-down black productions, they we've seen that they can't just be, it's not that they, um, we've seen that they, not, only, not only can they be popular, they can be incredibly profitable. The Fox network is a perfect example of that. Like everything that the Fox network is today is because of black led productions. Um, In Living Color, Martin, Living Single. Um, these are all uh, productions that were ratings giants in the 90s and made a lot of money for Fox. But towards the end, once they once Fox was in a solid state um, financially, these shows were canceled, shunted aside, or moved into time slots that really hurt the ratings or killed them. Or in the case of In Living Color, they fired the black creators of the show um, and replaced them with uh, with non-black creators, and the show tanked. But then it's they were able to say, well, you know, the ratings were bad or uh, just wasn't funny anymore. Or it's some time slot. Uh, even even recently in 2015, Fox had its biggest hit in years with Empire, which, again, is another top to bottom black led production. Uh, black all black cast actors, um, writers, directors, musicians, producers. Um, it was their biggest hit in years. And it was a consistent ratings giant for years. And then unfortunate reality happened, but it didn't get the, after its first year, it really didn't get the promotion that it had deserved. Um, so it's, so we've seen that these productions can be profitable and popular and these studios are making money off of our work, but they're not giving us the recognition that we deserve or the advertising that we need to keep this train going definitely i think it's it's very you know of course it's important to you know give people voices and give people the recognition that they deserve um and to allow at this time to allow the voices of the unheard or the voices of the suppressed to come up and to um as in a filmmaking side you know create content that would um apply to their uh, races and cultures as well. Um, if we're talking about ethnicities, not the human race, because there's only one human race, but different ethnicities. <laughs> but I mean, of course, you know, we're talking. Chris, you mentioned like normalizing it um, so that it can be profitable. And Colin, you know, we do need to recognize these, um, or at least the the African American or Black voices um, and uh, the other uh, minorities as well. 
for if you're speaking about you know having a diverse group of、um, individuals and creators, and not just having you know the whites do this and the blacks do that, you know if we're, if we're talking about combining them to create a story together, what do you think are some advantages of having a diverse group, of having you know voice, voices from many different backgrounds come together and making a film? Um, I think that you get a much more, you get much more complete stories, or you get much more interesting characters. Like,、uh, in Bring It On, the like really popular movie from two thousand, the one of the lead actors in that was Gabrielle Union, a phenomenal actress, talented actress, and she was like, she's. Miscast or misrepresented as the villain of that movie, when in actuality she's the protagonist, or she's one of the protagonists,、um, as equal standing. But she's still cast in the light of the mean girl as the、uh, stereotypical angry black girl. But no one ever really goes into why is she angry because the movie lays it out right there as to why she's angry and has every right to be. And I think it's when you recognize, like, so it's not just that、uh, it's not just in having these diverse stories or just having these diverse rich characters, but you also start to see more black people in roles that you wouldn't typically see them in.、Um, Halle Berry said in an interview once there was this part that she had read for and she had auditioned for, but an executive had told her that、uh, the part was for a park ranger. And、uh, but she had been told that she wasn't going to get the park because there was no such thing as a black park ranger,、um, which I don't know about the validity of that statement. Certainly,、um, in all of our national parks, one of them must be black. But、um, or and it's all and it carries, but it does also carry over into your everyday life.、Um, You know, you can get used to because, like, because of movies. And I'm not gonna like stand and say that like movies are the most important thing, or they're like, uh, like, uh, movies have all the power to change people's lives and dreams. But you know, a lot of people do see and do get representation in movies that they aren't gonna get in real life. It normalizes these things,、um, and you start to see, especially because as we've seen with、uh, protests. Uh, with the protests or with、um, everything going on in the past couple of weeks,、uh, you'll see a lot of people, like Candace Owens in particular, saying that George Floyd shouldn't be a martyr. He isn't, but shouldn't be、uh, venerated as this symbol of the movement because of his criminal past or criminal record. I'm like, wait a second. I thought, because like we're in like when it comes to our media, we're in the age of the antihero. We're in the age of Don Draper of Heisenberg from Breaking Bad. We're like getting all these morally gray, complex characters. So you love these characters on TV, and you probably do love an antihero yourself. But this person had a criminal record, and he deserves to be murdered in the street by a cop for it, even though that's not at all what he was、uh, like. What was the motivating factor? Because the officer who killed him. And、I know his name. I just don't want to say it. But the officer who killed him definitely didn't know about his record、uh, when he kneed on his when he had his knee on his neck for almost ten minutes.、Um, you know, 
more complex, more interesting uh, black characters in movie gives people a chance to see us, to recognize that we're people. We have hopes and faults and we make mistakes or um, just like anyone else does. Um, we shouldn't ha deserve to die for that. We shouldn't deserve to be treated differently from that, especially since we've seen what people really respond to and like. Why does Walter White, uh, why is he just seen as this great uh, individual to look up to or aspire to? You see people have, uh, they get tattoos of him. You see people, like, they love Walter White, uh, even though he's a horrible person by most measures, even as a character. Um, but that same just like interesting uh, or recognition of his of moral gray doesn't exist for real life people. Yeah, I think the best like the thing to me that is unique about film and any type of art in general is that what you're essentially watching, viewing, consuming is something that someone or a group of people have collectively put together. And when you get to listen and watch and observe and kind of take in the stories of a diverse group of people, ultimately what you do is you humanize them. You learn to empathize with people that you may have never had a contact with in your life before. You get to learn some things about them. You get to see the perspective of whoever directed it, essentially, about this group of people. And so by normalizing who's on screen, who creates the film, who writes the film, who directs the film, who edits the film, by normalizing a diverse group of people that do that, what you're doing is you're, you're getting a diverse sense of empathy for more people. And you cannot develop that in some places where you just have a predominantly one ethnicity neighborhood, for instance. You may have never, ever experienced what someone's experiences across the world if you ha didn't have film or media. And especially in this time where we're talking about stories and the experiences of other people that have been insanely oppressed and criminalized, the best thing that we can do for people who don't know that experience or don't know what it's like to live that way is to listen and to watch and to consume the things that those people create so we can learn to be more human. Yeah, it's like what... So there are polls, like there are polls, there are graphs that you can find, but I found that when it comes to, like if you just look at your average year, if you're a black woman in a major movie production, chances are you are only going to speak 6% of the time. Um, and that is a generous, uh, that is a generous number. Um, so like really ask yourself, what are you missing out on when you're not listening to a black woman's story or experiences 94% of the time? Um, what are you missing out on when you, uh, don't really think about the experiences of when you don't want to make a story or when you don't want to see a story about the experience of a black trans girl uh, living in living anywhere in the ghetto or living in a really upper, uh, really nice neighborhood and going to a fancy prep school. Um, what are you missing out on when you don't think of the story of the white passing um black or latino or asian person in a family where the rest of their family can't pass what's their like how is their experience going to be different from the rest of their family but yeah and then oh, at the end, yeah oh sorry hey, sorry i cut you off go ahead and finish there 
No, I was gonna say I was like gonna go into something else, but just like that's something I was just like a bit concerned with. Uh, like the longer we were in quarantine, before before George Floyd and kind of around Ahmad Arbery, but definitely like in the middle of quarantine. Um, I was afraid that these stories were we were gonna have to wait to hear these stories told in a major like through major. Uh, productions on the big screen like i'm like at this point i'm speaking mostly of movies uh tv is doing pretty great when it comes to representation of black uh voices that you don't really hear from like blackish pose uh queen sugar which i love oh and then there was underground which is a really cool y'all should check out underground that's a really cool show only two seasons um but i was a bit concerned because we've seen waves of uh black representation in media they come and go like towards the end of the 80s and in the 90s black people were killing it we have the first like real like a solid crop of black a-listers who are being considered for parts that were written for uh white actors which is a pretty big deal because if black actors were just going to work for parts that were written for them there wouldn't be a lot of work for black actors so the 90s we're seeing the first time where execs are just like, what's Will Smith doing? Or, ooh, you know who'd be great for this? Angela Bassett. That had never happened before. But then 9-11 happened. And with coping with that tragedy, as well as this uh, swell of nationalism, um, Black-led narratives kind of tapered off uh, in the mainstream for a solid 10 years um, like I said, there were exceptions. Tyler Perry Studios really took off during that time, but they weren't getting the same recognition, um, and they have their own controversies in and out of the community to deal with. Um, and that was something that I was concerned with, uh, like as the end result of COVID, if we reached an end result, this was months ago, um, what was all the progress that we've made in the 2010s? What was going to happen there? Were we going to have another post 9-11 like, uh, like absence of black faces on the big screen? Uh, that's something that I was pretty concerned with. Now I have no idea what to anticipate because every day I wake up and it's some new horrible thing. <laughs> well, hopefully this will be the kickstart of an era of representation and diversity. Um, I don't want to compare it to 9-11, but similar to like the nationalizing movement um, that 9-11 had, maybe this will be the, a global movement of uh, against racism and discrimination and be the start of representation. I think what you, what you guys both just said were spot on about, you know, listening and educating yourself and recognizing what is in front of you um, and not just like kind of ignoring it to the side. Because definitely, you know, knowing the significance of something will greatly shape the way you think about it and um, the experience. Because I remember myself when I first watched Moonlight, like, I, I just thought of it as like, you know, the Oscar winning movie and I didn't, you know, recognize it for the, for what it actually like did. Um, yeah. Not only for the black community, but also for the uh, gay community and LGBTQ. So, you know, knowing the significance of it will greatly shape the way um, you experience and you watch it and you go moving forward. 
uh, as we as we wrap up here, are there any final thoughts um, or questions or concerns? Yeah, I have a question for everybody. Um, in the wake of a lot of these movements, and hopefully as the movements continue, what, and you know, thinking about our history in the filmmaking industry and like where we come from and our foundations, um, what are some tips for students? Like, how can students best tell stories that are meaningful and valuable? I think one way that students in a diverse area try and make your cast, your crew, as diverse as possible. It, how you want to shoot your movie. And then you will bring more ideas together and you'll probably have a better production because of it. I would say uh, be like take an active listening role when it comes to stuff being said on your set. Because obviously you can't control everything being said on set. But if you hear something or if you hear whisperings of something where someone is saying something like openly bigoted or just stupid, you really need to like stand up and say something. Or if someone comes to you and says, Hey, uh, so-and-so was saying this and it felt really inappropriate or it made me uncomfortable. Um, uh, like you really need to listen and do something even if you like, even if you know the guy, even if you think to yourself it's a joke or he's just being dumb because that shit matters, it hurts or it's not funny or it's like you're making it. You're you are not taking into account the experience of the person who's coming to you and opening up to you because they might have heard jokes like that before and it really hurts them and it can affect how they do their job or it can affect how they whether or not they want to work with you again and is it really worth keeping a relationship with someone who makes those kind of messed up jokes on set at your place of work uh versus keeping someone who's trying to do their work and is like and it took a lot to tell you that this is this inappropriate thing happened to me. Anything else? Um, yeah, just the last, just something to tie up everything on that is um, for students, you're going to be learning how to tell a story. So the best thing that you can do is to tell the story that you know, tell your story, don't tell someone else's story. And when you tell your story, listen to the stories that are not your own. Listen to the diverse group of people and listen to experiences of other people from a different perspective. And then finally, support those and facilitate those stories being told. Because one of the worst things that can happen is you can tell your story, but then someone else cannot tell theirs. So as you tell your story, make sure you elevate everyone else's as well. And quick before we go, I didn't do this, even though you said it, but um, like just... If anyone, so if whoever listening wants to go in deeper, I have no original thoughts. Um, I am citing, I'm citing uh, uh, video essays or stuff from classes I've learned or documentaries or movies that I've watched. But three that I really would want to recommend if you want to go further into uh, black representation in Hollywood over the past hundred years or so um, is... 
uh, a century of black cinema. It's on Amazon prime and it's really good. Uh, and there's, they gotta have us, which also goes into black history, but it's more modern and it features a lot of black actors from that golden age of Hollywood. And you really get to hear their firsthand experience, um, dealing with crappy stuff on set. And then there's also the, the best actress so white video by the YouTube channel be kind rewind it goes into uh, the experiences and history of black actresses in Hollywood uh, it goes into the very first and as of this recording only black woman to have won best actress in the leading role Halle Berry it's on YouTube and it's great um, these aren't exhaustive, uh, videos, so they're, but they're great jumping off points. They're great starting points. Um, and if you want them to explain everything for you, they're not going to do that. Do your own research <laughs> after that. <laughs> these are just to help you get started. Alrighty. Thank you guys so much for coming on. Thank you, Colin, for giving us your time and your insight. Well, thank you for having me season finale too <laughs> i know that's it thanks so much for listening to the podcast i hope the past 21 episodes were helpful and insightful thank you for your support and i hope to see you around <laughs>